Well, good morning, everyone. As always, it is a great blessing to be here with you again today to worship, and it is a privilege and an honor to be able to share the word with you and to be able to minister in our pastor's absence. Today, I want to speak to you from one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, 2 Peter 3. In the past, I have uh, taught from this text uh, during Sunday school, and I even referenced it in a past sermon, but this is the first time I will be teaching from it during our morning worship. This text is especially meaningful to me because it deals with something that I think should be important to all believers, the coming day of our Lord. And this is not some dry study in eschatology, not that anything's wrong with studying eschatology. I mean, this is in many ways eschatology. But as you will see, this really speaks to and challenges believers at a personal level. So with that in mind, please take your Bibles and turn again to Second Peter 3. We will be looking at verses 1 through 13. Second Peter 3, verses 1 through 13. Here Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heaven and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want to begin my message to you this morning with a statement and a simple question. The early church lived and served with sure expectation of Christ's return. Do you? 
You know, I often make the point that Christians, especially those of us here in the United States, we are too at home in this world. I think we sometimes forget that we are citizens of another kingdom and that our lives should be lived less and less for for this world and more for eternity. And while I know that, that most, perhaps all of us here this morning, believe that Christ will return, I question whether we look to the second coming or at the second coming with the expectation and hope that we should, or perhaps the fear that we should. Well, in Peter's day, this was not the case. For the early church, the day of the Lord was a coming certainty, something to be looked to with hopeful expectation. But there were also false teachers and scoffers who, among other things, rejected the biblical teachings regarding the second coming. And they used it as an excuse to mock God's true church. And so Peter, writing, keep in mind, with with spirit-filled influence and authority of God, is compelled to address this matter in a second epistle. And in our text this morning, Peter opens by saying, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. With these opening words, Peter is encouraging the church to to hold fast to those truths that are set forth in God's word to keep their minds undefiled by the evil influences around them and to be mentally uh, alert to discern truth from error. And by God's grace, it is my hope that Peter's words will do the same thing for us here this morning. In the godlessness of our times and, and of our culture, churches like CBC, Christians like like you and like me, we are in the crosshairs of the unbelieving world. And like those early Christians in Peter's day, we need to be encouraged to stand fast, to, to, to hold tightly to those truths that are given in God's word in the midst of the unbelief that is around us. We need to be encouraged to live and to serve with eternity in view. And I believe that 2 Peter 3 is a great place for us to find encouragement and to be challenged to this end. In the context of, of the church's end-time hope, 2 Peter 3 essentially paints a picture of what we can expect from the unbelieving world and what we can expect from God. It also offers some very practical instruction on how Christians ought to live as they await the Lord's return. So with that in mind, I have broken this text into a fairly simple outline that I hope will help us make sense of Peter's instructions as we seek practical wisdom and encouragement from it. First, we will look at what we can expect from the unbelieving world. Second, we will look at what we can expect from God. And finally, we will look at what God expects from us. So, 
What can we expect from the unbelieving world? Very simply, we can expect the unbelieving world to mock and ridicule us. We can expect the unbelieving world to mock and ridicule us. Notice in verse 3, Peter writes, Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. When Peter says, first of all, by the way here, he is not starting a list here. Peter here is stressing the importance of what he is about to teach. He is saying, in essence, this is critical. Make sure you understand what I am about to say. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Now, when are the last days? The last days, this refers to when? The New Testament era. The last days began uh, uh, in the early church, and we're still living in the last days. All right? In the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing. Now, in the original language, Peter uses an idiom here to emphasize and, and actually draw his readers or his hearers' attention to the disposition of these scoffers. He is in essence saying, in the last days will come scoffing scoffers. Scoffing scoffers. In other words, what he's trying to emphasize here is that if you hold fast to those truths that are set forth by the apostles and prophets regarding the Messiah's return, if you hold fast to the word of God about the coming judgment, you are going to be mocked. You are going to be mocked. It is going to be relentless at times. In Peter's day, scoffers often came in the form of false teachers. In fact, the word translated as scoffer, while it carries the idea of one who scoffs or mocks, it can by implication refer to a false teacher. And I won't get into it, but just to encourage everyone to read chapter 2, of Second Peter, where uh, he describes these false teachers or scoffers in, in some detail. Now, when I think about this, just how can someone who claims to be part of the church, how can someone who claims to be a teacher of God be so blatantly anti-Christ? Well, we see it in our day, don't we? We see it in our day. You know, I recently watched a video debate between uh, a Christian, a Christian author, and an atheist who, by the way, happens to be a fairly well-known celebrity. And as we all know, no one is better qualified to address matters of spirituality than a celebrity, Right? Anyway, in the debate, the Christian author argued that belief in a literal interpretation of the creation story is a relatively recent thing that did not become common in the church until the rise of fundamentalism. Intelligent Christians, he said, intelligent Christians, not us, obviously, right? The intelligent ones. He said, going all the way back to First century AD understood that the first few books of Genesis were not to be taken literally. Saints, apparently this intelligent Christian knows more than the apostles and prophets and even Christ himself. 
all of whom took Genesis very literal, right? But again, mocking of God's people by others who claim to be of God is no new thing. You may recall that, that God sent Jeremiah to Judah with a message of judgment. And as you might imagine, Judah did not receive that message very well. And in Jeremiah 27, the prophet, he laments to the Lord and he says, You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. You will recall that throughout his ministry, and even as he hung on the cross, our Lord himself was mocked by those who claimed to follow God, who claimed to be teachers of the word. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 41, we read, The chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. So, scoffers scoff. Scoffers mock Christians. And as the name suggests, the primary tactic that they use is, is ridicule, is mockery. And this is an effective tactic because, let's face it, no one likes to be made fun of. No one likes to be made fun of. Now, I'm not qualified to get into the psychology of this and... and I don't want to even discuss some of the pride issues that may be involved. But the simple fact is no one wants to be looked down upon. It is our nature to want to fit in. Uh, We want people to like us. We want people to think of us in a positive light. We don't want to be a laughingstock or, or the butt of a joke. So scoffing is a powerful tool in the hands of the unbeliever. And it is effective in a couple of ways. First, it discourages believers from sharing their hope. It discourages believers from sharing their hope. Think about it. And you don't have to raise your hands here. Because I don't want you to lie. Have you ever been silent about your beliefs because you were afraid you would be ridiculed? Have you ever been silent about your beliefs because you were afraid you would be ridiculed? I already know the answer. (laughs) I'm reminded here of of Paul uh, at the Areopagus at Mars Hill, standing in front of the intellectual elite of his day. Did he try to win them over by making his message more palatable to an intellectual audience? No. (laughs) He told them about creation. He told them about divine providence. He told them about redemption and he warned them about the coming judgment. And he was able to do this because he was more concerned about the souls of men than he was about being ridiculed or even persecuted. Right? He looked at his culture with the intent of proclaiming the gospel And he was willing to be a fool for Christ. 
I would also point out, and this is a second way in which scoffing is an effective tool for unbelievers, that ridicule, it's not just intended to silence believers. It is also intended to discourage belief in the undecided. I recently read an article from an atheist who encourages people to mock Christians. He literally has a website about mocking Christians. Complete with instructions, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. In the article, he mentions that mockery may not change the minds of those who are being mocked, but that it can be a means to influence those who are on the fence. He says, quote, mockery persuades people who don't yet have a settled opinion on the issue, in part by using social pressure. If people are laughing at a particular view, it pressures the undecided to distance themselves from it. He goes on to conclude his thoughts by saying, Christian faith is a delusion for childish people. Doubt is the adult attitude. Ridicule is both helpful and necessary. Someday in the future, people will treat Christianity just like all other dead gods and religions are treated today. We mock them. In the future, anyone who learns about Christianity in a history book will mock it like all other dead religions, end quote. This guy really likes Christians, doesn't he? So scoffers use ridicule to discourage us from speaking and to discourage others from listening to what we have to say when we do. But why? What is the driving force behind their disdain for Christians and Christianity? Well, again, in verse 3, Peter tells us why. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. This is the primary driver, the primary motive behind their hatred uh, for God and the driving force that, that causes them to openly question the coming of Christ and, and, and to mock his church. They love their sin. They love their sin. Peter warns us in the, again in the previous chapter about these apostates. He says they have an insatiable lust for sin and that they are slaves to corruption. They are like a dog that returns to its own vomit or a sow who after being washed returns to wallow in the mud. Just to be clear, these are not just people who merely struggle with sin as we all do at some level, okay? These are not people who just struggle with sin. But they have made a deliberate choice to reject and suppress the truth of God in favor of their sin as a means to justify their sin. I'm reminded here of those uh, of whom Paul speaks in Romans 1 beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, these people recognize, uh, looking at creation, they recognize that this has been put there by God. But what do they do? 
They suppress the truth. Why? Because they love their sin. I'm also reminded of those uh, of whom our Lord speaks in John 3, beginning in verse 9, when he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. See what's going on here? When you're in your sin, when you have blatantly rejected the truth of God, you don't want the light of Christ shining on you. You want to hide in the darkness, right? Or as we see in our world, you want the whole world to share in your darkness, right? Saints, we are not mocked because we believe in something that is so outlandish. We are not mocked because the evidence is not there. We are mocked because people would rather suppress the truth and avoid the light than repent. Right? Unbelief is not a question of evidence. It's a matter of depravity. Let me ask you, how many of you have been to Ken Ham's Creation Museum? A lot of you, right? Amazing place. And I would argue that when it comes to scientific evidence to back scripture, really no one has done more than Ken Ham. And yet Ken Ham is one of the most marginalized uh, figures in the scientific community. One of the most marginalized figures. In the interview between the atheist and the Christian author that I mentioned earlier, the idea of creation science came up and both men, they just chuckled at the mention of Ken Ham's name. You see that? You see that mockery, just that sly little? They would have everyone believe that Ham is some type of loon, that, that he's crazy, that what he is saying is, is, goes against every type of scientific theory. You know the story. But saints, whether a person agrees with Ken, uh, agrees or not with what Ken Ham teaches, if he or she is looking at the evidence objectively, Ham's position is at the very least worthy of debate, right? It's at least worthy of debate, even if you have questions about it. Even if you have questions about it. And by the way, I would add that, that Ken Ham certainly knows more about science than the two reprobates who mocked him, okay? I have no doubt about that. So then why do they laugh at him? Why do they laugh at Ken Ham? Because he teaches judgment. Because he teaches repentance. He teaches judgment and repentance to a world that loves sin and deliberately suppresses the truth about their creator. No matter how much evidence he presents that shows that the world really was created by God or that shows that the flood really did happen, no matter how much evidence he presents, even if it's, if, 
it cannot be logically questioned. Ham will continue to, be, to Ham will continue to be mocked by the secular world and by intelligent Christians. Now I mention all of these things because when we interact with the skeptical world, whether we are dealing with scoffers who mock us or or whether we are just trying to share the gospel with someone who's lost, with a friend, with a coworker, with a family member who doesn't know Christ. Whenever we do these things, we always need to keep in mind that depravity is at the heart of unbelief, not the evidence, depravity. So we don't want to just challenge the evidence. We want to challenge the heart issue. We want to challenge the sin. Well, to complement their mockery, the scoffers essentially make two arguments here in the text. Uh, One is obvious. One's maybe a little bit harder to see. First, they argue that Christians have a flawed view of history. Notice in verse 4, the scoffers say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, this is nothing short of uh, uniformitarianism or uniformity. Uh, if you got to be part of Tommy Loman's study, how you, I know several of you have got to be part of that. He talked about this. Um. The doctrine of uniformity is a key doctrine or a key theory adopted by many scientists, particularly when it comes to the study of geology and related fields. It teaches that the Earth's geologic processes acted in the same manner and with the same intensity in the past as they do now and throughout history. And it teaches that This continual process that is happening is the cause of all geologic change. And that's why the earth has to be so many billions of years old, right? In Peter's day, these early uniformists point to the fact that Christ has not returned to essentially make a larger argument that God never has and never will judge mankind. Now, I'll come back to that, but I want to talk about the second argument. When the scoffers ridicule Christians about the coming judgment, when they infer that it is a myth, when they make their argument of uniformity, they are actually making a second and frankly way more egregious accusation. They are calling into question the character of God. Do you guys see that? Remember, it is God himself who warns us throughout scripture, often in his own words, speaking of the coming judgment. It is Christ himself who promises to return. So when the scoffers mock these promises, they're actually mocking God. They're actually calling God a liar. They're saying, you're not going to do those things. They are saying that our Lord cannot be trusted to keep his promises. Saints, this is wickedness upon wickedness, isn't it?
so we know that that we can expect the sin inspired scoffing from the unbelieving world but what can we expect from god what can we expect from god first we can expect that when the day of the lord comes christ will destroy the universe and judge the unrepentant notice beginning in verse 5 that peter says for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, this is Peter's answer to the uniformity argument, by the way. Uh, by the way, it sounds like he may have interpreted uh, Genesis literally too, huh? <laughs> Apparently he wasn't one of the intelligent Christians of the first century. When the scoffers insist that things have continued as is throughout history, they are overlooking that after God spoke the world into existence, by that same word, he destroyed it with water. So contrary to the assertion of the scoffers, things have not always continued as they were. History actually proves that God's judgment is indeed real. And by the way, notice that the scoffers, they don't just overlook these truths. They do it how? Deliberately, right? Deliberately. This is in keeping with what we've already noted about scoffers and, and scoffing in general. Unbelief is not an innocent mistake. Unbelief is not an innocent mistake. It is a suppression and rejection of what God reveals it is an intentional darkening of one's own heart. Again, going back to Romans 1, uh, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Saints, this evil world is ripe for judgment. And thus Peter goes on to say in verse 7 of our text. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The same word that created the universe, the same word that released destruction and judgment on an evil world in the form of the flood, will once again unleash destruction and judgment in the form of fire. Again, contrary to what the scoffers assert, things will not always continue as they are. Things will not always continue as they have. The universe that God spoke into existence will one day be destroyed with fire. And that day will be a day of reckoning. A day of reckoning. A day of unimaginable pain. For those who continue to suppress the truth and scoff at God and his church. In verse 10, Peter elaborates on this a little bit. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
And in verse 12b, he says, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Saints, we do not know when the Lord of the day will come, but we know it will. And when it does, it will come swiftly without warning. And talk about global warming, right? (laughs) There's a great deal of debate in the church about what this fiery destruction will look like, and, and we will not get into that. That's not really important for our purposes. But one thing is for sure, the day of the Lord will be a day of purging. It will be a a day of unexpected judgment. First, Thess- First Thessalonians 5.2 The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. A.W. Pink puts it like this. The first time Christ came to slay sin in men. The second time he will come to slay men in sin. So when Christ returns, he will destroy the universe And judge those who remain unrepentant. But what about the believer who awaits Christ's return with hopeful anticipation? For the wicked, the day of the Lord marks an end to to God's common grace. But for the righteous, for those who have trusted Christ, it marks a time when the scoffing will be over. It marks a time when God's elect will be gathered together. It marks a time when the believer's ultimate hope will finally be realized. Verse 13 of our text, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. As believers, we do not have to fear when we hear that fire will destroy the created universe. We are kept safe in the arms of our Savior. And on top of that, we are partakers in his new creation in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness. No more sin. No more pain. No more sorrow. Now, let's step into the scoffer's shoes for a minute this morning. Imagine for a moment that you do not believe that Christ will return. Imagine that you have no hope of a life beyond this world. Imagine that you have no hope that injustices will be rectified or that evil will come to an end. How do you feel? How do you feel? Think about this. With such hopelessness, it's no wonder that a lot of unbelievers are so cynical, right? It's no wonder. They say that misery loves company, and I believe that scoffers scoff at Christians, at least in part, because they want everyone to be just as miserable as they are. 
But guess what? We do have hope. We do have a hope beyond this world. We know that injustices will be rectified. We know that evil will come to an end because we will be partakers in a new creation in which righteousness dwells. Now, remember the first century Christians did not view the second coming as a a faraway future event. They expected Christ to return at any moment. So you can imagine that as day after day, week after week, year after year, as all this continues, you know, you begin to ask yourself, what's going on? What's taking them so long? You know, these scoffers are relentless. Christ, come quickly. When verse 8, Peter addresses this. And by the way, uh, this is not just an answer to the believer's question about Christ seeming delay. It also is an answer to the assertion that that God cannot be crust, uh, cannot be trusted. It's really addressing the character issue or the the, the character argument that the uh, scoffers bring up. Verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, when it comes to the day of the Lord, we can expect God to operate with his own sense of timing. Which is vastly different than our own. Notice here that Peter says, do not overlook this one fact. This is a play on words. Back in verse 5, remember, Peter points out that the scoffers deliberately overlook the uh, previous judgment of God, which is clearly set forth in Genesis. And now he is telling Christians not to overlook this matter regarding God's timing. In other words, don't make the same mistake as the scoffers. Don't do what they are doing. Peter's statement regarding God's timing is actually an echo of a prayer offered by Moses in Psalm 90, verse 4, where he says, A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So, although it may seem from man's perspective that God is slow in keeping his word, we must always keep in mind that he is operating from an eternal perspective. But the seeming delay of Christ is not just a uh, matter of a perspective on time. There's something else going on as well. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, the Lord is not tardy or late. That's the idea. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, I believe this is really the heart of this entire passage. Notice that Peter says the Lord is patient towards you. Who does you refer to here? Who is you? The scoffers? No, it's the church, right? It's the church. He then adds, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What I want us to see here and what Peter is trying to 
drive home to the early church is that the cause for Christ's ret- uh, uh, seeming delay here in his return, which is really not a delay at all, is an exercise in divine patience for the sake of the church. Christ will not return until his church is complete. Christ will not return until his church is complete. Of all that the Father gives to him, how many is he going to lose? None. Right? Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Folks, praise God for his patience, right? Praise God for his patience. Praise God that he endures the scoffing from reprobates. Praise God that he endures with each of us. I know that many of us already know this, but it's worth repeating as a reminder. God would be just in sending any and all of us to hell, would he not? But instead, he is, as the psalmist tells us, slow to anger, rich in grace, rich in uh, compassion, rich in mercy. And this is the good news, not just for us, but for the sinner, even for the scoffer at some level. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4, that the kindness and patience of God is meant to lead you to what? To repentance. To repentance. The patience of God is an opportunity even for the scoffer to turn to God in repentant faith. And by the way, just I know with myself, when you talk with someone who is scoffing, you know, what is the way that we want to respond sometimes? We want to respond in the flesh, don't we? We want to turn it into some type of debate. But folks, we need to look on these people with mercy in our hearts. We need to look upon them with grace in our hearts because God has called us to be evangelists. He's not called us to, be, to, to win the debate. He's not called us to make people feel small, right? He's called us to, to confront people in their sin for the purposes of, of, of hopefully using that where he can come in and, and, and in his divine sovereignty, soften their hearts and, and, and call them to, to faithful repentance. So that needs to be our attitude as well. Well, we're about out of time. So let me just make this last point real quickly. We know what to expect from the world. We know what to expect from God. But as we await our Lord's return, what does God expect from us? What does God expect from us? Well, this is what Peter addresses beginning in verse 11. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Now, the statement is going to continue, but that word ought, it indicates that there is a responsibility on the part of the faithful here. Uh, Now that we have a clear picture of what God is up to, how should we respond? What should we do in response to to seeing how God is operating? Well, for starters, our life should be marked with holiness and godliness. Again, in verse 11, Peter writes, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, although this verse really it sounds a little bit like a question, it's really more of an emphatic statement. And what Peter is doing here, he's echoing his own words from his first epistle, uh, first epistle in which he commands the church in 1 Peter 1.15 to be holy in all conduct. And why are they to be holy? Who remembers? Why is it that he calls them to be holy? What's his reasoning? Because God is holy. Because God is holy. As those who live in the never-ending presence of God, we cannot live like the rest of the world. We must cultivate lives that are marked by holiness and by a reverent fear of God. Secondly, Christians should serve diligently. Notice in verse 12, Peter writes, waiting for and hastening the coming day of, the, the coming day of God. Waiting in the original language carries the idea of expectation. And the word translated as hastening, this is interesting. It can mean to long for, to, to eagerly, eagerly wait. Um, and uh, by the way, I believe that that is what uh, we see in MacArthur's commentary. But I'm going to disagree with that a little bit. Don't stone me, please, okay? I'm going to disagree with that just a little bit, and I'll tell you why. The word can also mean to speed something up by putting forth extra effort. Now, again, given the context, I think a case can be made for either interpretation. But I prefer the second interpretation for a couple of reasons. First, when we see this word used in other places in Scripture, it usually carries the idea of hurrying. So, so kind of the cumulative evidence from scripture and also other sources as well that were written during this time, uh, it really favors the interpretation of hurrying or, or, or putting forth extra effort as to speed something up. But second, the idea of longing for, while I do think that that is implied in this text, it's, it's reflexive. Uh, in other words, it is something that we do almost without conscious thought, kind of like a reflex. But the idea of putting forth extra effort to speed something up, that's active. It, it is asking us to consciously respond, to think about what we are doing. And I think that's what Peter is doing in this text. He is calling us to action. He is saying, serve with diligence so as to accomplish the work that must be accomplished before Christ returns. That said, as Christians, we should long for Christ's return. Now, even if it is not explicitly stated in the text, 
we see that the church is filled with hope. In fact, they draw the scoffers ridicule because of this hope. And Peter's essentially telling them, don't let the scoffers take that hope away. Don't be discouraged by the seeming delay of the Lord, but trust in his promises and cling, uh, cling tightly to that hope. So in closing here, again, I ask, what is your hope? What is your hope? Does this hope compel you to live and to serve well? The world around us and even many in the church, they may laugh, but God's promises are real. They are certain. Unlike the scoffers, we are no longer slaves to our lust, but we are servants of our Lord and children of our Heavenly Father who look to the day of the Lord, not as those who will be judged, but as those who have residence in God's righteous, eternal kingdom. And so our lives should reflect that hope in the way that we live and in the way that we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we are just so thankful for these words that you've given us through your apostle Peter. I pray, Lord, that they would penetrate our hearts. I pray that they would uh, just be used as you would have them to be used to edify your church and to bring glory and honor to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.